Professions in Depth Psychology is powered by Pacifica Graduate Institute. Your host is Bonnie Bright. Hello and welcome to Discussions in Depth Psychology powered by Pacifica Graduate Institute. I'm Bonnie Bright and I'm your host and I'm also an alum of Pacifica Graduate Institute from the Depth Psychology program there. And as many of you who follow this series know, Discussions in Depth Psychology offers you a chance to meet and learn from some of the remarkable individuals who are contributing so much to this field of depth psychology. And my guest today is Michael Mead, who's a storyteller, author, and scholar with many books in the field, which we'll talk more about. But first of all, welcome, Michael. Thanks for being with me. Well, good to be with you, Bonnie. Well, I'm going to share a little bit about your background by way of reading your bio, and then we will jump into our discussion. But before I do that, I just wanted to let everybody know that Michael Mead is presenting at an upcoming workshop at Pacifica, and that's in Santa Barbara, California, of course. And it's entitled, The World is Churning, The Myth of Genius, The Genius of Myth. And that takes place July 8th through 10th of this year, 2016. So I hope that everyone can have a chance to check that out. You can find out more information at pacifica.edu in the public program tab there. So Michael Mead is a renowned storyteller, author, and scholar of mythology, anthropology, and psychology. His hypnotic and fiery storytelling, street-savvy perceptiveness, and spellbinding interpretations of ancient myths are highly relevant to current culture. He's the author of many books, including Fate and Destiny, The Two Agreements of the Soul, and The World Behind the World. Mead is the founder of Mosaic Multicultural Foundation, a Seattle-based nonprofit dedicated to education and cultural healing. And for more information about his work, you can visit mosaicvoices.org. So, Michael, that's a pretty glowing bio, and I can personally attest to the truthfulness of all of it. I had had the chance to see you a couple of times in person, and I know that many of the listeners here are familiar with your work, and it's just such profound work. And I am so grateful for how much you've done to bring depth psychology into the more mainstream and, and make it more accessible to everybody. I wonder if you can start out by telling us just a little bit about how you came to doing this work. And by this work, I suppose that means kind of anything because your fiery storytelling, as we mentioned in your bio, of course, is something that you are very well known for. And, and watching you relate a myth by using the drum and just engaging the audience on a level that is quite remarkable is one type of work. But of course, your writings are also another very different kind of work, all important, of course. So can you share a bit about your story with us as we get started here? Well, years ago, someone asked me, first time anyone asked me, how did you become interested in myth and story? And it's not something I had thought about, but the answer came quickly inside me, which is on my 13th birthday, my aunt had asked me what I was interested in, and I said, well, now I'm interested in history, because I was actually reading history to try and understand what in the world happened, that I wound up living the life I was living. And so she went off to a bookstore to buy a history book. She was a notoriously short woman, and I imagine from what she said, she asked where the history books and someone pointed to an upper shelf. She reached up and grabbed a book, bought it, they wrapped it. She gave it to me that evening. And when I began to tear the paper off, she said, oh, no, that's the wrong book. Give it to me. And she started to pull the book back. And I'm going, no, I want this book. She could see that it wasn't the history book she had reached for. What I was looking at on the cover of the book was the flying horse Pegasus that was flying across the cover of the book. And to me, it was a very compelling image. 
And I'm saying, no, I want this book. And she's saying, give it back. It's the wrong book. And so then I tore the rest of that paper off, and it said Greek Mythology by Edith Hamilton. And so I got the right, wrong book on my 13th birthday. And to me, that was really telling, now that I look back on it, in the sense that we're aligned with certain things. And even though it took me 20 years to figure out what to do with what began as a really passionate interest in myth, I read almost that entire book that time. And and I found language that made sense to me. And I remember the feeling was like, I get this and I'm allowed to be in it. It wasn't like school where I had to pass a test or I had to show that I was qualified, old enough or anything. It was a language I got right away. And it just gave me such a greater insight into life for me. And then it turned out that no one understood it. Myth was not something that was being studied in school. And so I maintained my interest in it, but it took me about 20 years to figure out that it was actually the path of my life. Mm. That's such a beautiful story. And of course, I'm sure many of us can relate to how sometimes those seeds of what is to come are, are really embedded deeply in our childhood. And something about the age of 13, when that whole unfolding sort of began for you, or when you remember that it began, is really right there on the threshold of adolescence and moving into a different stage. And so I think it's a very powerful illustration of the image, I guess, of the acorn, to borrow from Hillman, unfolding into this amazing oak tree. This reminds me of a quote that I saw from you just this morning, and I have this highlighted in my copy of Why the World Doesn't End, which is just a beautiful book. I have used this extensively for the last many years of my own studies in depth psychology. But in the book you wrote, the soul's way of being is unique to each person. It was seeded and sown within each of us from the beginning, and it tries to ripen throughout our lives. What exiles us more than anything is the separation from our own instinctive, intuitive way of being. We are most lost and truly in exile when we have lost touch with our own soul, with our unique inward style and way of being in this world, unquote. And for me, that was such a wonderful illustration of how each of us has something that is embedded in us, that if we are willing to stay in touch with it, and of course, at the tender age of 13, I think that that, again, that kind of threshold time does allow us to be more open and as we grow and become adults and, you know, become sometimes more cynical and jaded, we begin to lose touch with that aspect of soul. So can you say more about what this means to you, this unique kind of aspect of soul? And I think this will tie directly into a new book that you have out, which is called The Genius Myth. I had like seven or 11 titles for the book. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it, it, it happens. And uh, But I really was doing, it's a pair of books, right? You, you were quoting from Why the World Doesn't End. And so I wrote mm -hmm. that book, which is to give a mythological and depth psychological view of how, even though it seems like the whole world is falling apart, you know, we're living at this radical time when nature is rattling and culture seems to be unraveling. And so I wanted to give perspective from death psychology and myths, saying that the world can't come to an end. So that's why the title, Why the World Doesn't End. And that's, of course, a collection of stories from different cultures about how the world renews itself. And then... The most recent book that just came out is The Genius Myth, and that's really about how does a person navigate a period of such great turmoil and uncertainty 
And my suggestion is by being in touch with one's innate genius because it is an unerring guide to what a person's life is supposed to be about. And I'm using genius in its old sense, not the way people commonly use it now to indicate high IQ or a distinct talent, but the old meaning of genius, which is the spirit that's already there, that is to say, like you were quoting there, the unique spirit that's in each person's soul. And so why I wanted the book out specifically now is to say that what's often obscured in the modern world is the deep importance of the individual soul, whether it's the issue of transgender, which has now risen to the surface of culture, and, you know, people are having to deal with the idea that you have children who are transgender, that are making this as a choice, this is something that's active inside them for whatever reason. And so one thing that's possible now and makes it more feasible for people to just respect anyone else, regardless of how they appear or what their background is, is because what makes a person immediately worth something is a complex of abilities and gifts inside each person, and it's unique in each person. And in this increasingly collective society, where everybody is part of an age group and a gender identity and all these ways that people refer, it's the uniqueness of life that gets overlooked, and yet it's the uniqueness of life that is the most dependable thing in terms of finding meaning and purpose in individual life. I think you're making a really important distinction here, and that is that this uniqueness is something that is inherent in each one of us, obviously. And it makes me realize the extent to which, especially, particularly, I suppose, in our culture, but in any culture, that we are essentially conditioned or enculturated into believing certain things that tend to make us a little bit more generic, I guess. A lot of people these days are talking about globalization and how everything is being kind of brought to sort of the same level. And in some ways, we actually lose our creativity and our capacity for uniqueness when we are caught in sort of this web of enculturation or globalization that really insists that we are all supposed to be a certain way or act according to certain dictates, which maybe have not been questioned enough and certainly not questioned enough for a long time. I know that you talk a lot about the unraveling of the world, as you put it, and this has been something that's been a really critical topic for me as well. I've done a lot of writing and research and thinking about this. And I wonder if you have ideas or thoughts about how we can walk that balance or use the unique genius that is in each of us to walk that balance between the unraveling to actually discover the genius, I guess, and and sort of escape that net of, of conditioning that we have each grown up with. Well, you know, it's a tricky thing because once you accept the idea that each person is unique and that the genius nature is unique, Then you have the problem that, therefore, there is no predetermined way in which a person discovers it. And so the genius is unique, and the way of discovering it can be unique. And so in the book, one thing I try to do, and this is partly the reason for the workshop at Pacifica, is I try to distinguish the genius myth from the hero's journey. And part of the the way I decided to approach it was that The hero's journey is a valuable story, although I've always disagreed with Joseph Campbell's idea that it is the 
the only myth or the myth from which all other myths derive. I think that's a mistaken idea. But the distinction I wanted to make, and I have been making, is that the hero's myth tends to be understood as a person making dramatic moves in the outer world and that the accomplishments are in the outer world. And then it also tends to be masculine in tone. And so then you get people associating the hero with power and strength primarily. And then you get the superheroes that are the callings of Hollywood movies. And it seems to me that it's moving in the wrong direction, and it's also not really working. It's not current. So the genius myth makes the argument that the genius is already there before we're born, and that it's something that we bring to the world and even something that brings us to the world. And it's the discovery of something inside oneself that is important now. I've worked in the past number of years with a lot of youth suicide situations, in talking with the friends of someone who has committed suicide at a young age, I have found a common conversation to be many youth of all kind of social status and economic background in the United States. Many, many of them think they're empty inside. They have been kind of told that by the culture and, and that they have to make something out of themselves. And I find myself saying to them, no, you already are something. You have to make yourself aware of who you are in order to have genuine self-worth and therefore not be as uh, available to suicidal ideation and so on. So I'm also saying that given all of the dramatic changes that are happening in the world and that rapidity of change and the rattling and even hollowing out of institutions, there's very little in the outside world a person can depend upon for orientation and for coherence. And so we have to look inside to find the orientation of our lives and ways to cohere. And so for me, you can aggregate that around the idea of an inborn genius that has both the gifts and abilities of a person, but also has a kind of arc of purpose and destiny. And I've been working for several years with this dynamic the world is rattling, it's going to keep rattling. The security or the kind of coherence might more readily be found inside in the deep self as opposed to outside in the world that is changing rapidly and so full of uncertainty. Mm, this is really important and beautiful work. And I agree with you very much in terms of not just our youth, I guess, although they are certainly at the forefront of this, but you mentioned the word rapidity, and, and I often think about the speed with which everything seems to be moving these days, and, you know, technology has been partially responsible for that, but so much in our culture is about moving fast, and there's less and less depth and reflection, and there seems to be more and more sort of this fast-paced movement that we just can't quite keep up with, and part of that does tie in still with what you were saying about the hero's journey, too, and that is that I think there's a lot of pressure on people in general, and particularly youth, to feel like they have to succeed at everything they do and they have to succeed by a certain time in their life, on a certain timeline, that they need to meet certain requirements, and that there's no room or space for failure. There's no room or space for feeling less than confident about yourself or 
um, feelings of depression or, or sadness or all of these things that soul really requires and wants. And I know that you've mentioned in many of your works the whole idea of a, a growing poverty of imagination. And I think that when you talk about the genius myth, I'm certainly imagination plays into that very strongly. Can you say a few words about the relationship between imagination and soul and the genius myth? Well, throughout the, the book of the genius myth, I refer in various ways to vertical imagination. Maybe the background idea is, it's an old idea in mythology, that there's always two stories going on. One is the ongoing story of the world, and the other is the story of the individual soul in the world. Those are the two dramas, and everybody's implied in all the dramas. And so, all right, so one, one other little image, which is the soul involves the depth of a person, and in depth, a person is naturally connected to nature and the world around them, then one of the definitions of genius is the spirit residing in that soul. So here we are in a world that is increasingly horizontal. And you can say the world has become flat again. Everybody's connected, but it's a horizontal connection, which keeps the world kind of flat. And everybody's interconnected all the time, but the connections don't go deep. Therefore, there isn't the growth of soul for the individual or the world. And then you see the evidence of that in the increasing polarization and divisions that are happening throughout the world very tragically, as we just are witnessing in the aftermath of the shootings in Orlando and many other cases. So how do people get back into an imaginative, creative connection to the world well, one obvious thing is vertical imagination has to return. Vertical imagination in one direction goes deep into the soul where it connects to the deep emotions, but also the depth of feeling for being, for being, actually being and being present in the world and being connected to the world in depth. And then the other connection is the vertical upward and being connected to the great high ideas and the great imagination that people used to consider themselves connected to the stars. And that's, to me, the way in which the human soul is intended to be a channel or the connecting element between the stars above and the core of the earth. And each human is in that connection if they awaken to it. And so all the problems that we have, everywhere you turn in nature, everywhere you turn in culture, are not going to be solved by more horizontal connection. They're only going to be solved, I think, by more awakening of individual genius with this vertical imagination that going downward connects us to the earth and to nature and going upwards connects us to the heavens above, which is another way of saying to the heights of imagination. Yes, the image that I'm perceiving while you're talking about this is that of a tapestry. And, of course, that's this weaving into and together with the other elements of the world, with other people, with our own deep resources that we have within and available to us. And like you say, to the stars above, I mean, we, we have to reach in all the directions in order to create the miracle, I think. Yeah. Another premise there is, and this is another distinction with the hero myth, in, in the sense that there are so many needs, in other words, if you look at culture, 
healing needs to happen uh, once again between the genders, but also between the understandings of what gender is, between the races as the racial issues have risen to the surface again. Obviously, political healing at some point has to begin. And then when you turn to nature, the same thing, ecosystems, waterways, forests, all need healing. And so what I'm saying in the book is that this is a time when everyone's genius nature is being called upon. As a matter of fact, there may be an acceleration of calling or vocation as both nature and culture need an awakening of the genius in as many people as possible. And so I'm trying to turn the idea of the collapse of the world into the renewal of both culture and nature and the connection between culture and nature, where human beings are supposed to be at the intersection where culture and nature meet. We're not just part of culture and therefore opposed to nature. Our inner nature is connected to nature, and we're supposed to be the kind of connective material between the realm of nature and the realm of culture. Oh, Michael, this is just wonderful. You know, I actually feeling into my body while you're talking and trying to determine what my own sort of response is to this. I literally feel almost this palpable sense of relief. And the relief, I think, is really just a recognition that some people are really tuned into the powerful need that we have on our planet right now. And it's a human story. It's not like it's just right now necessarily because this has been going on since the beginning of humanity, obviously. But the need for us to each do our own work and to be able to contribute to whatever consciousness is possible so that we can begin to create that healing that you have pointed out is so greatly needed. You say in your book, Why the World Doesn't End, our job is to be fully alive in the life we have, to pick up the invisible thread of our own story and follow it where it leads. Our job is to find the thread of our own dream and live it all the way to the end. Do you happen to have any suggestions for us as individuals who may be feeling overwhelmed about where to start, who don't necessarily have a concrete idea of how to get in touch with that genius aspect of ourselves? I think all of us get glimpses of it at times. Some of us are definitely closer to that than others. But in a world where distractions are many and and sometimes information is overwhelming and soul is not as obvious as we might wish it would be, how can people begin to start picking up that invisible thread of their own story? So, I mean, there's lots of ways to go at it. And, um, you know, depending on the age of the person, if the person's been around for a while, then I think it's possible to look back over the course of one's life. And, you know, when I look back quickly, there's a lot of things that disappear. I could not tell you anything else about my 13th birthday except that I got that book. Everything else just disappears back into the background. So I look for those things that stand out positive and negative, right? In other words, some people miss the thread of their genius because it it awakened in circumstances that were traumatic or it was very quickly rejected by one's family or one's community. And so, well, since this is about depth psychology, there's really two paths to getting to the genius, I think. 
One is to look back and just see what can be gleaned of one's natural gifts. And interestingly enough, often the internal gifts awaken most strongly when we're in trouble. So it's really a good idea to look for whenever a person has been in trouble and how did they survive that trouble because usually in trouble what awakens is actually elements of our genius nature. And then the other way to track it is to track a person's wounds. And so like in Fate and Destiny, there's a chapter in there about gifts and wounds. And this comes pretty much from Jung, although Jung was drawing on some old traditions. Jung once wrote that genius hides behind the wound. So if a person can, first of all, go to the wounded parts of themselves, wherever we're wounded, we're actually close to the genius. And it's often moving away from our wounds or being afraid to engage them, which creates a distance from the genius. I'll just repeat that. Carl Jung wrote that, that genius hides behind the wound. And so um, often the experiences where some genius awakened in us was either dismissed by someone or the circumstances were somehow confusing or rejecting or traumatic. And then also wherever we have been wounded or trapped and we have survived that, the genius was part of that survival. It just wasn't seen that way. And again, I'm not I'm saying the genius is the unique shape and style of a person's life. It includes talents and gifts, but it's actually the uniqueness of being that's in a person. And so um, those are two, two ways to go at it, through the door of whatever gifts a person has manifested that usually can be brought more fully into consciousness. And then secondarily, the door of where a person is most wounded. If a person can dwell there, they're actually close to their genius. Mm. Good stuff. You know, it's funny. I was sitting here as you were talking about that, and uh, I have just been reading some material from Lionel Corbett, who also talks about this idea that the divine is found in suffering. And I, my eye happened to fall on the first line in the book I have open next to me, which is your book, Why the World Doesn't End. And the first line that I saw in Chapter 8, it says, something deep in the human soul awakens as things fall apart. Yeah. And I think that that's so profoundly true, and not only for individuals, but also as a collective. And so when we look around and, and we do feel like in some ways the world is ending or that we see a mass kind of disintegration in all of these social systems that you've mentioned, and we see the, the challenges that just seem to be kind of facing us on every front, the important thing to remember here is that the world doesn't end and that there is something behind us, under us, that is shoring us up and supporting us. As we come to a close here, can you just leave us with a few words about your thoughts on where this is all going? I gather, obviously, from your work that you are optimistic about it and that there is real hope with the genius and with so much of this is shoring us up. But can you leave us with a few of your own thoughts on that? Yeah, a couple of things. In Why the World Doesn't End, I wrote about what I call the second layer of hope. The first type of hope is the innocent, naive hope, just hopefulness. And life usually requires that that break down and be deconstructed. And then to lose hope is called despair from the French desperare, to be without hope. 
And, and everybody's supposed to fall into the descent of despair because at the bottom of despair, there's a second layer of hope. And it's a different kind of hope. And I think in deaf psychology terms, that second layer uh, or level of hope would really be called imagination. Imagination being the deepest power of the human soul. And so when we think that all is lost, we're actually falling closer to the deepest ground of the soul, which you could say has the power of imagination. So that's one idea. Imagination is what we need in order to reimagine and begin to recreate the world. That's the opportunity of being alive right now. And then the other thing is a little myth from Ireland where they say when the center no longer can hold, that's what we're living through, there is no center politically, even economically, or even in terms of nature. We have melting ice caps and we have all kinds of radical changes in climate going on as if you can't find the center to anything. And what the Irish say is when the center breaks apart, it go to the edges. And so then they have the idea that if each person went to the margin and just found the thread that was intriguing to them there and began to pull that thread, then the center be remade from the weaving together of all the individual threads, which then I'm calling the threads of genius. And so again, not to be heroic, a person doesn't have to save the world or, or save the neighborhood or something. A person has to pull the thread of their own life as close to the center of being as possible, and they are contributing to the renewal of the world without having to take on some exaggerated burden or being in some hubristic condition. And so if enough people were just pulling the threads, then we would be participating in the reweaving of the world. You know, I think I wound up putting that at the end of why the world doesn't end, and then it's in the beginning of the genius myth, because to me that is hopeful in that old deep sense that we're being called on, we have always been called on to become ourselves. That's the real job of a person. Jung called it individuation, but you could also say just to become who we are at the core of ourself. And now that is not only the natural calling for the individual, but I think the world is calling for people to do that on an individual level because it wants enough people to bring that. The imagination of assisting the world to renew itself becomes possible. Beautiful. May we all look to those margins and find that thread and start pulling it. I've been speaking today with Michael Mead, who's a storyteller, author, and scholar. And Michael, I'm just so glad to see that you're presenting this workshop at Pacifica in July. The world is turning the myth of genius, the genius of myth. I know you've had a long history with Pacifica, and it's wonderful to see them welcoming you back to do that. Yeah, it's great to be coming back to Pacifica. It's one of the few homes in the entire culture for deaf psychology and for mythology. I mean, it's very few places where those two essential studies are being honored. And so I wanted to make sure right after this book came out that I could be at Pacifica. And what I want to do with it is have a deep conversation about creativity, imagination, and about the genius in the soul. And how do we make this 
more real in ourselves and then encourage each other as friends of the deep self and the soul to go into the world and do meaningful work based on who we already are inside ourselves. That's the idea of it. And so Pacific is the right place to do that. Absolutely. I agree 100%. You can find out more about that workshop July 8th through the 10th, 2016 at pacifica.edu on the public programs there. And you can also learn more about Michael Mead on his website at mosaicvoices.org. And, Michael, you have a strong Facebook presence as well, so people can find you and follow you there. Thank you so much for being with me today. I so appreciate your time and for all the work that you're doing in the world. Well, thank you, Bonnie. Good talking with you. You've been listening to Discussions in Depth Psychology, powered by Pacifica Graduate Institute with host Bonnie Bright.